There are few labels one could hurl at me, which would trouble me more than this one. Passive-aggressive. He's passive-aggressive. Steve's passive-aggressive. To be passive-aggressive is not just to be cowardly. Cowardice alone is not all that bad, and can even be charming depending on the context. To be passive-aggressive is to be at once cowardly, mean-spirited, insecure, and even moralistic. Passive-aggressive manifests itself through the attempt to wound and harm others, but in such a way that a bit of detective work is required to discern whether the attack was, well, an attack at all. Indeed, to be passive-aggressive is not just to stab in the back, but to stab, momentarily disappear, and then condemn backstabbing altogether. For these reasons, I try to never sink down to passive-aggressive behavior, no matter how tempting it might be. The opposite of passive-aggressive is, well, aggressive. And that doesn't sound too good either. I'd rather be called aggressive than passive-aggressive any day of the week, but neither is exactly a compliment, nor should either be. Aggressive was the way Simon and Levy behaved when they found out that their sister, Dina, had been raped by Prince Shechem. That is, the two sons of Jacob raided the town and slaughtered every man whilst taking the women and ca children into captivity. Now that's aggressive, but it certainly is not passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive would be if they had given a speech at Dina's and Shechem's wedding and pretended as though they were congratulating them while ever so slightly hinting that Dina was not there due to love, but due to coercion, and perhaps tacitly suggesting that Shechem has a small penis. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche deplored passive-aggressive behavior. In fact, arguably his entire philosophical system is based around condemning the passive-aggressive. Of course, Nietzsche did not use this term. He was far too cool for that. He referred to it as resentiment, or even better, slave morality. Nietzsche astutely detected that most, if not all, acts moralizing are really just clever masks for pent-up anger, hatred, bitterness, or, most precisely, resentment. Yet, Nietzsche's slaves did not say to their enemies, I hate you, or I resent you. Instead, they said, I am more moral than you, or even, most grotesquely, I love you. We know what Nietzsche believed about the passive-aggressive. It is less clear to what extent, if any, he endorsed the aggressive in turn. We know what Nietzsche thought about Jesus and Socrates and even Buddha. We do not know, however, what he thought about Simon and Levi, the pillagers. In short, we do not know how Nietzsche really felt about revenge. For Nietzsche, was revenge cathartic, authentic, juvenile, evil? To help us answer this question, I have invited Keegan Keldson onto The Shrift. Keegan is the host of the podcast, The Nietzsche Podcast, where he has published dozens of lectures devoted to analyzing the renegade philosopher. Now based out of Austin, Texas, Keegan discovered Nietzsche while touring America with his heavy metal band. During long drives across the landscape, Keegan would lie in the back of the tour bus and read book after book of Nietzsche's. Undoubtedly, Nietzsche would have been overjoyed to know that a heavy metal rock star was reading his philosophy over a century later. Indeed, the likes of Keegan were almost certainly the free spirits whom Nietzsche designated as the audience for his philosophy. I'm very excited to have him on the show. So, Keegan, welcome. Hey, hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, would you agree that, as I mean, I believe that Nietzsche would be outraged by wokeism and would also say, "I told you so," or "I told you this was coming." Would you agree with I don't that? Think he'd or be outraged? 
but okay. I, I, I mean, he wouldn't like it at all. Um, but I think he would recognize that as like in Twilight of Idols, he says the biggest mistake that we make is uh, mistaking the effect for the cause. And that things like wokeism are a thing you see oftentimes when as a sort of symptom rather than the underlying cause. And I think it is a, an underlying symptom um, of all the things we've sort of been discussing. The death of God, uh, you might say, what else? Uh, like a declining confidence in ourselves, um, which tends to happen when um, when the populace is no longer required uh, to, what would you say, like, um, cultivate physical quality in order to like meet their quotidian needs from day to day. But basically like we're, we're living in a highly advanced economy where a lot of people imagine that like sort of the natural default state of life and existence is like, and that the same thing is just like comfortableness and safety. Right. And that's not the norm at all in human existence. So they look back on like past ages and they see like these horrible injustices, um, by our own standards and then like it terrifies them but this is the thing we see repeatedly when like societies basically haven't had where the average person hasn't had to like fight for to secure anything and <laughs> any of their like freedoms or their privileges it's just something they're born into it's it's a repeated thing that you see you even see it on the individual level right like uh like the the uh however many generations you have in a noble like lineage until like basically all the kids are like have just inherited their wealth and like they get overthrown. Um, so I think, I think that is an element of it, but I, I, I'm just saying he wouldn't be outraged in terms of, I think he would, I think Nietzsche understood uh, this as like a natural thing that happens when you're sort of declining <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's sad, right? It's tragic. He would certainly say that, but I don't think he, he necessarily thinks there's anything you can do about it. He says that uh, um, like one's uh, physical health can't be extended indefinitely by liberal institutions and you, you can't cure disease or vice with liberal institutions. And so I think it is like a very radically uh, anti-progress view that he holds. And that includes the idea that you can't really stop this or like change the course of it which I, I know no one really wants to hear, but um, yeah, that's how I would see it. Right. So, well, um, I, regardless, I think we agree that he was, well, I guess what I was just trying to say is that this urgency that he was writing about with morality is like, because I personally have really recently discovered that I think in a way our society is even more like quote unquote Victorian than the Victorian era in a very kind mm. of twisted way in the sense of the level of repression, the level of guilt and like fear of ever being called immoral today, I think is yeah. or like you're selfish or you're, uh, you know, these, these racists were so afraid. Yeah. yeah, like, like there we are live in things this... you can be called that are just they're they're like evil. They trigger people in a way that it almost doesn't do it justice to say I'm being called a bad person because that's like almost a it's like a silly like little neutral thing. Hardly anyone says you're a bad person. Like, no, no, that's says, not. Hey, you're a bad person. That's not the way they say it. They usually say like some epithet that's like really toxic when you hear it, right? And it is bad. It's like puts an ick factor on people. And I think you're onto something that there might be. Like uh, maybe this gets into Freud a little bit, but like a huge counter, like that, like under the surface, there might be like a huge amount of, cause that's the criticism of Victorianism, right? Of like you repress sexuality, you have like a really pathological sexual impulse as a result of that. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why we're seeing these pathological moral behaviors because, because of that repression you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I actually just realized it recently because I started reading this book about how about being too nice, you know, like this epidemic of niceness. Um, and I'm reading this book, it was written, you know, in 2017, 
doesn't mention Nietzsche at all. It does mention Freud. And I'm reading this book and I'm thinking like, oh my God, like Nietzsche said all of this stuff like 130 years ago about how, mm -hmm. about this high level of, of just this constant self-accusation that eats away at you and um, this total repression of instinct and id and, well, he didn't use the word id, but I, I guess I just recognize, I saw this as an exam, another example of Nietzsche's prescience, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd agree. I, yeah. yeah. You are listening to The Shrift, Interview 8 with Keegan Kelson, host of the Nietzsche podcast. Vaishlach. I would like to hear your opinion on what would Nietzsche definitely say is not how you should react to somebody. Let's say somebody, um, you know, you're in a, in a, in a meeting, I should have thought of these in advance, but, and, uh, let's say like you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you, doesn't say, excuse me. Right. Um, that's not a great example either. Well, we can use that, sure. Um, so they bump into you and you knock, you're carrying a stack of papers and they fly all over the place. And uh, yeah, it's horrible. And you're with your girlfriend and you look, you're yeah. with your girlfriend and, and, he, and, and then maybe he laughs at you as he walks by. Like, haha, like I made you fall and your girlfriend, you, look, you feel embarrassed in front of your girlfriend and you don't do anything. So we know what Jesus would do in the situation, right? I mean, uh, right. So, what would Nietzsche? What would be the worst way for Nietzsche mm. to handle this as a human? Right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, he 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 tells us this. Uh, I would say, but by the time we get to, I mean, it's kind of there's a thread throughout genealogy, but I think it comes into full relief in the third part. But um, so, yeah, the passage you brought up where he talks about uh, Mirabeau, he says uh, it's like a mark of a strong, complete nature where he has the power to forget. Mm -hmm. um, he had no memory of insults and maliciousness and the people directed at him, is what he says here. Um, so it... I want to make reference to another passage. It's from Human All to Human. Well, it's from Wanderer in His Shadow, which is Human All to Human, uh, book three. And it's part 33. There's, a, there's actually a part called Elements of Revenge. And one of the things that he says um, is that he, want, he wants to distinguish between the types of revenge. That basically, if something like, uh, so like somebody bumps into you, right? That scenario we just laid out. It's entirely like natural and normal to have a feeling of like immediate like rage at that and wanting to lash out and that this is has an evolutionary basis to it right if something strikes at you you strike back out of um you know and he's like we can call that revenge if we want but uh really you're you're striking to make them stop attacking you right or to to defeat the opinion um and that, well, not in, in this case, the guy's already gone. He's no longer a threat. Right. And so he says the second type of revenge, which is really what revenge is, uh, is what should be more properly called revenge, is when time is introduced and you sit with it. And then that's when all of these interesting psychological things come into play. And one of the things he says in this passage is that um, the only reasons why people, after a time period, like a... A uh, person of noble temperament, for example, like 
who had power to uh, to requite himself against, you know, requite harm with harm when it's done to him. Uh, well, I guess he doesn't specify the nobility. Let me just, I'll read this quote really quick. He says, Every, quote, everyone will revenge himself unless he is without honor or full of contempt or full of love for the person who has harmed and insulted him, end quote. What does that mean? Well, he says, well, if you know the person and you love them, you'll give them a, a pass, you know, a lot of the time. Maybe not, but, you, you know, that's like a reason. That's a justifiable reason. But another reason is if you're full of contempt for them, what does that mean? And that's where I, I, I was thinking of the nobility is he says, and this might be the explanation for someone like Mirabeau, if you don't actually see them as your equal, it, you, you sort of have the power to say like that slight doesn't even matter. Like how can you even, how can someone as insignificant as you even like pose a threat to my, uh, to my yeah. dignity or my honor. And um, so that might be like the ideal, but the worst thing, which as I believe the way you phrase the question is not even to go and like get really mad at the person and then go take revenge on them. Right. Because that might be unhealthy. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's totally other directed. It's not self-directed uh, or in, inwardly directed. It's, it's uh, letting other people affect and control your emotional states and like risk your own health and advantage in order to harm them, which is like not productive for anyone. You know, like you, you, this guy bumps into you and you, you like, spill your papers everywhere you go like find his car and let all the air out of his tires or whatever that's that might be kind of bad for that reason but it's still not the worst thing the worst thing is having the thought of doing that but not doing it and then continuing to fantasize maybe this is a guy you go to school with and every day you see him you're like oh i would love to like you know throw my hot coffee on his face and you just think about that every day uh and mm -hmm. because that really is ressentiment um it's where you can't you feel you can't you don't have that ability to forget you don't have the strength to forgive and really that's sort of Nietzsche's charge at Christianity is that for the forgiveness element of it is kind of veiling the fact that the priests ultimately their resentment uh turns inward and becomes creative and they invent tortures for all of these people that are going to happen to them later as recompense. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like where in the old uh, Testament, but it's, I think it's quoted again in Romans. I forget the passage where God says, you know, vengeance is mine alone. And so there's like two sides to that, right? There's the one side of saying, uh, you know, my, my children don't take revenge. It's mine alone. It's not yours. But on the other hand, there's the other side of that is the promise that like, don't worry, I'll get them for you. And I think that's what Nietzsche would say is the worst because that poisons you um, is like sitting around imagining uh, future tortures for your enemies. Um, and Wouldn't he talks about, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's like Tertullian or an early church father who says that in heaven, one of the pleasures will be being able to look at the suffering of the damned. And uh, mm. it's sort of like, you know, um, that might just be a problem with like, trying to describe heaven because it's kind of hard to give people a uh, compelling description of it but that's what he says you know um and so even in heaven it's contaminated with this other directed need to see the suffering of others which is very bizarre but it shows you that tendency so yeah i just wonder if i agree with you that um i i think that if you let the air out of his tires nietzsche would probably prefer that because at least you're taking some kind of action that's at least authentic as to how you really feel like you want him to suffer and you're you're acting on that i mean at least that's releasing some kind of energy um and yeah. that to sit and let it eat away at you but i think you there nietzsche has an even worse level which would be pity right which would be to say i'm not going to get revenge because i pity this man because he is evil and like he just is not you know i i i i pity him for his ignorance and his boorishness and i'm better than him i'm a better person than him and i'm still not going to do anything but i'm going to tell myself i'm better than him 
uh, yeah, a higher, higher morality. You, yeah, yeah, I feel bad for you, man. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying there. I think um, the real question would be, um, or it's like sort of the million dollar question, right? Is what is it unconsciously that that, per- or even consciously that that person's actually experiencing it, which is driving that, that ability to apply pity to the person that, that harmed them? Um, and what is their inner life like? Um, because I think Nietzsche's problem with that might have to do with the fact that um, that kind of attitude is always a mask for that like hostility because it contains exactly. that element of judging and condemning the person. And so like we have these images of people like Jesus or Gautama Buddha or, you know, any number of figures where like it strikes us as so divine. I think Nietzsche says this. It's like, it strikes us as so divine because we all know in our own inner life that to actually show that level of like complete uh, forgiveness towards people who have harmed you is like almost alien to the human condition. And so when we see somebody like Jesus, who we're told like, yeah, he actually doesn't have any ill will towards, you know, the people who crucified him. It's like impossible for us to imagine that, right? Whereas um, Nietzsche says to the extent that that did exist, it was actually in the noble morality because the people who were seen as of roughly equal power with myself, if I'm a noble, aren't seen as evil. Like their ability to do harm to me doesn't make them evil. It actually makes them my equal. It makes them worthy of respect and admiration and something I can learn from. Um, And that uh, to the extent that love thy enemies ever existed on earth, it's been in the minds of like the Greeks and the Persians or, you know, something of that nature um, of like rivals that mutually uh, compete and yet like enhance one another, uh, make one another stronger through their uh, competition. Um, and so he kind of hints that maybe ironically enough, love thy enemy is something you could aspire to, but that would be on the level of like, it completely self-legislating interdirected morality where you are you're unable to um you're unable to even like invest any energy or meaning outside of like your own goals your own strength your own like your own good your own passions you're not uh you know getting super concerned with like what's going to happen what other people deserve right isn't going to concern you at all and so i think that's another interesting element to it as well. Yeah, I think um, it. That's a great. You hit on a great, I guess, uh, just turning kind of uh, a great point, but kind of an, an essential point, which is all of this comes down to the inner monologue or the inner the way you feel, right? So it's only an to, for this to happen when you, if you, a guy bumps into you and the papers go everywhere and he's laughing at you, pointing at you, um, that's only, it's only uh, embarrassing or insulting if you, how you see, if you see yourself in that moment as a guy who just got bumped into and made a fool of himself, right? So there's a certain amount of like inner hatred or inner, yeah, if you have a certain amount of self love or just self um if you see yourself as noble then you can transcend that slight um when you can also see the other person as uh sorry I'll, i'll make this real quick but like um you know for nietzsche it's uh he says there in zarathustra it's like the bridge to the highest hope that man could be delivered from revenge um and that that's what stands behind our word justice and that throughout that passage, it sort of ties into his like uh, sort of ideas on fate that, um, you know, there's like an innocence to the world and an innocence of becoming and a necessity to the way things are. And you just sort of would see that person. You could just as easily see that person of like, wow, what a blind, ignorant person who's like beneath me. And how could they possibly tarnish my dignity? Right. And yet you're naturally putting them above you when you say like they've like wronged me like this. Right. 
And I think that if you have respect for your enemies, it, it, however you feel about your enemy is in a way how you feel about yourself. Because I think to love your enemy and to see them as an equal, you have to be so confident in who you are that you don't take anything personally in the way they treat you, right? Like it's just competition. It's just sport. It's just kind of sparring. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're, it doesn't reflect on if they insult you or whatever, they challenge you, they stab you. Like it doesn't actually challenge you well, because of how on... you see yourself. Yeah. Well, and then you're like, you said, said, your enemy reflects on you, your choice of enemies. And you do have a choice of enemies to some extent. I mean, I've, I've been in these positions like throughout my life where usually just in like in the social life, right? Where it's like, okay, somebody is is like, you can tell they're prodding at you, like trying to start conflict. And you do have the ability to just ignore things like that. And that's generally what I've done in my life. And I'm, I'm much happier for it. Um, like I have a low, I mean, the, the, the colloquial way of talking about this is like drama, right? Like some people can't uh, get enough of it and they will, they will readily choose their enemy, right? For whatever reason. But, um, and I guess this isn't like a super deep insight or anything. It's basically just sort of the colloquial wisdom of like, it takes two to tango or whatever you want to say. But uh, yeah, your enemy totally reflects on you and there is somewhat of a choice. I mean, maybe that's not universally true, you know, like, if, you know, uh, or it's not like, I wouldn't like hold to that as an absolute statement, but I think in a lot of ways, yeah, if we're talking about your mindset and your inner life, it really is the truth. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I also have had many experiences where I felt like the guy that got bumped into um, and not sure how to react. And um, I think there was probably a time in my life where I was very, I tried to channel that anger toward like moralizing. <laughs> it's actually, a, it comes back to wokeism, I think. I think a lot of wokeism is a way of moralizing your way out of feelings of revenge, right? I think it's like, I don't want to get, I mean, we don't have to get into specifics, but moralizing is a way of being, it's really a way of being passive aggressive because you can, you can hold yourself above others in a way that you're not actually making yourself vulnerable by attacking back, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you're not, um, it's a, uh, we can't have the war the way we used to. So we're going to have it in terms of just like condemning you morally. I, I think part of it is maybe also just might have to do with the development of, again, what so we were talking about how society's changed in many ways. And that, um, how would you put it? Like there is like a form of social warfare, you could say, right? Where you like people try to demolish each other's reputations and things like of that nature. And I think human human consciousness or whatever you want to say has brought that into its awareness over the past number of centuries and millennia. And it's greatly accelerated in the past number of decades uh, due to like modern technology and um, that level of interconnectivity where you can like go to war with somebody and try to destroy them socially without ever physically attacking them or ever, you know, with no expectation of physical uh, confrontation at all. Um, you can do things that, I mean, cause like, what is the point of war in a lot of, um, you know, ancient contexts like acquisition of land and resources or depriving uh, someone who you consider to be a threat or who's wronged you of resources. It's like, well, if I can get you fired from your job, like that's definitely war by other means. Um, but it is like, uh, yeah, it's taking it. That's what, uh, again, taking it into a moral dimension where you're condemning uh, the person um, or whatever it might be, you're uh, passing judgment on them.
In his 1887 book on the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche seems to lay out for us how we can find a healthy and vigorous way to handle wounds to our ego. Nietzsche introduces us to an 18th century Frenchman named Honoré Gabriel Riquetti, Comte de Mirabeau, who participated in the French Revolution. Nietzsche liked few people, whether dead or alive, and yet he seems to have been a rather big fan of Mirabeau. We do not need to know much about this relatively minor figure in European history. What is important about Mirabeau to Nietzsche, and therefore to us, is that Mirabeau let insults roll right off his back. If you laughed at him, he would just laugh with you. You could not insult the guy. Nietzsche emphasizes that Mirabeau was not able to take insults on with a smile because he had internalized the mandate of Christianity to pity your enemies. Rather, Mirabeau was exceptionally good at the art of forgetting. Mirabeau, according to Nietzsche, was so infused with feelings of strength, creativity, and flexibility that he had literally no memory of the insults that people directed at him. Nietzsche says that Mirabeau could never forgive anyone because he forgot the insult almost immediately. To quote Nietzsche, such a person with a simple shrug simply throws off himself the many worms which eat into other people. Nietzsche then writes in a dig at Christian morality, only here is real love for one's enemy possible, provided that it is at all possible on earth. I asked Keegan to what extent Nietzsche's endorsement of Mirabeau can be applied uniformly across the philosopher's spectrum of thought. give us like another example i just thought of it's a little more colorful let's just say you're at a <laughs> you're at like a bar with <laughs> you're on a date with your girlfriend you know you really like her and we could do this in the we could do the girls on a date with their boyfriend but we'll stick to the man example because i guess because we're men so um and a guy comes over takes a takes a pint of beer and just pours it on your head right right in front of your date you're soaking wet in beer it's it's humiliating, right? What would be, and the girl's like looking, I mean, it's just, and the guy points and laughs at you. That, I mean, it's the same example, it's just like a little more vivid. Um, what would Nietzsche say is the best way to handle this? What's the ideal way that you handle this? Because this could theoretically happen to anybody. This could happen to Napoleon. Right. Could... Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, that's that's uh, what Robespierre did to uh, to Mirabeau as he poured a pint of beer on his head the, the, in front of his girlfriend. No, not really. Um, <laughs> it's probably wine. Yeah, but... yeah, of course. Yeah, it was wine. <laughs> he uh, he yeah. stole his salami and his brie. Um, no, uh, well, you know, again, I think this might break down along the lines of because so remember the whole master slave morality like emerges out of a fundamental power dynamic that basically. The whole reason for the slave morality is your inability to take revenge, to requite harm with harm. And that it doesn't have to be this like negative violent thing. It could also be like if you look at the nobility of uh, China and the Chinese tradition, there's a huge gift giving like culture is the sort of the norm. Right. When you meet with uh, when a foreign like kingdom, like their king comes to stay with the Chinese emperor, the emperor like gives him all these gifts and it's like well, you're my guest now and i'm going to dote on you to like a ridiculous degree and actually outdo you and how much i could how generous i can be right and so i think it is important to point out like and then that'll be expected to be reciprocated right and sort of the greater man is who can be more generous that's the more powerful man is the one who can uh requite rewards with other rewards and so it's really requital that i think is what's behind the master morality is that whether or not somebody 
actually takes revenge or actually is generous. The real question is, do they have the power to be? Um, and when they don't, that's when you have this like, okay, a slight is made against you and then you, it's not answered. And then over time, the psychology is going to do all sorts of things with that. You're going to possibly get resentful or you'll have these fantasies of either revenge or forgiveness or whatever. And so I think in that case, like it, I mean, really like you, why don't we escalate it further? Like you're leaving the bar and somebody pulls out a knife and says, give me your wallet. Right. It's like, you're, we're basically just escalating towards more degrees of somebody taking physical force and exercising it on you in a directly malicious way where they're saying like, I am using my physical power to push you in whatever direction I want you to go. Right. On that level, like, uh, I mean, it's a little complicated in modern times because we have the law and stuff like that. Um, so that can make things a little different, but, uh, it's good because like, if I was to give practical advice to people out there, you know, uh, I, I took martial arts when I was younger. One of the things the instructor said is sometimes the best way to win the fight is to lose. Cause then you can sue them. So, you know, like <laughs> we do live in like a, a situation where you can, uh, do some jujitsu and apparently losing makes benefits you more, but, uh, you know, that might not always be the case. You might actually be in genuine danger or whatever. Well, I think that's why the like, beer example is better. Cause I don't think you could really, I mean, you could sue someone right, for that, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't get much money. If somebody did that to me though, I would, I would basically be in the mindset that I don't know what this guy's going to do next. Like if this is truly unprovoked, it is uh, sort of the, the situation where you either like uh, stand up for yourself in some physical way, or you're probably just going to get pushed further. And so that's where I would say like, if you have the ability, that's where you, you know, yeah, requite harm with harm if you have to, um, or, you know, send a clear message that that's not going to happen again. I think Nietzsche would have, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say like what Nietzsche is saying we should do. I think he would say that if you did that to like a Teutonic barbarian, you're probably going to get your neck broken. Right. And so I don't think he would have like any problem with that he would say like an authentic sort of master morality person would have just responded to that in kind or with force um well, but I then mean, you know we have all the other elements i mean wouldn't like what sorry go on i mean i mean like mirabeau i would think mirabeau as this this like laid-back french dude doesn't just like gets over stuff you know maybe he would just laugh and just go take a shower and come back, like just wouldn't let it get to him. I mean, wouldn't that be the ideal that he just feels so good about himself and so like, I'm mere, like he just, he's just like, oh, this beer tastes good. You know, I'll, I'll order a beer I now. Right. Like wouldn't that yeah, be the, I think, what, or is that just, yeah, I think yeah. that here's, here's the deal with that though, is that like, that's all contextual to a certain degree. Well, for one, if you're not Mirabeau, like maybe you just don't have the capacity to forget like he does. And then that, right. you know, that's going to tear you up inside or you're going to be like humiliated or whatever. Um, but more, I'm more, more thinking about that. I guess where my mind goes is like sort of what I was saying earlier is like, and I guess this is maybe a function of having spent a lot of time in, in bars is like, if I was in that situation, like among strangers, I would feel like, uh, um, who knows where this is going to go next. Right. Or like, so like, let's take, let's put it in a different context. If you had like a, like, let's say some world leaders are meeting, right. Let's say president uh, Xi Jinping is meeting president Biden and Biden walks in and he's uh, licking on his ice cream cone and he just takes it and like drops one of his uh, scoops of ice cream on Xi Jinping's head. Right. Uh, I'm not saying like, uh, you know, like you could say on the one hand, well, if Xi Jinping is truly a great leader, he would just take that slight and stride. But then you like kind of look and you're like, well, in that situation, aren't you sending a message that your nation gets to humiliate me publicly and that I have no ability to like respond to it? So I'm not saying he should start a nuclear war over it, but it is one of those things where it's like, it all depends on the context because if it is like sort of a thing where it's like, well, this slight doesn't really matter. It's just somebody pouring a beer on me like as a prank. 
but I think Nietzsche would be very aware of like, there are situations where people exercise power on you in a way that, um, like, here's the question to ask, I would say, does this exercise of power on me come from a person that is going to use it to then exercise further power on me in the future? Or is this person not actually powerful and they're not actually worth my time? They're just sort of like acting up maybe because they aren't powerful, right? So those questions sort of have to be asked of like where you stand in the power structure and the relation to a person sliding you. Because if it is a position where, because um, Nietzsche talks about this oftentimes when it comes to like the Greeks and his study of like Thucydides. I mean, Nietzsche really admires these Greek nobles. And sometimes it really was that the representatives of this one city state didn't treat the other ones with the proper respect or slighted them in some way. And it's not necessarily because they're like, you know, getting, getting angry or resentful. It's like a recognition of like, you've done a power move on me that has then upset the balance that now needs to be corrected. And it, so that's sort of what I'm going to, I think in it, to just put it clearly though, I don't think you're wrong. Like, I think he would say like in many contexts, being the person who just lets that, lets the beer would just roll off your back. Right. That's the best way to be. And most of us aren't in a position where it's actually productive or actually does mean anything to like go against these slights. But I, I guess I just wanted to bring in the element or the nuance that he thinks that a big part of the master morality or, or of being the nobility was the ability, this ability to balance the scales is sort of the way he puts it. And, you know, you talked about that story uh, from the Torah of Dinah. Is it Dinah or Dina? Um, I say Dina. Yeah. Dina. I don't know exactly okay. officially what it is, but I say Dina. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of that. Like there's like that old song, right. That like we're Dinah. Uh, uh, like, yeah. I, I don't know if it comes from that. So that's where I like what I think of. But I definitely would read that into that story that it seems like it's coming from that older sort of morality that, um, you know, like it doesn't really matter what was going through like Sechem's like head. It doesn't really matter what Dina felt. It's basically like we consider this a slight against us that uh, is like a like a challenge to our dignity or our power, how we're like perceived by all the other people of the region. And that's sort of why, why Jacob like condemns them at the end is he's like, okay, well, the way you responded to this could affect the way we're perceived in the region in a negative way and make them resentful towards us, right? Like you overreacted to where now you're going to make them resentful. And that's like, that's kind of a thing that you might think about in the Nietzschean way of like resentment and how that all works is like to ask yourself occasionally the question, am I generating resentment in people who I'm like exercising my power against? Because that will probably come to bite you in the ass. In the Parsha Vayishlach, we read that Jacob and his family return to settle in Canaan. In their new city, Dina, Jacob's daughter, decides to go out one day and walk around. The king of the city is named Hamor, and his son is named Shechem. Well, Shechem sees Dina walking around. It is not exactly clear what transpires between Shechem and Dina based on the Torah reading. We know that they have sex with each other, but the Torah also suggests that Shechem took Dina forcibly, that is, that he raped her, and had sex with her in a way which the Torah indicates was unconventional. Now, there are various theories which suggest that Dina was not raped, but rather that the sex was consensual. And the events which follow suggest that Dina may herself have had a fondness for Shechem. In the very next sentence, after we learn that Shechem raped Dina, we read that he fell deeply in love with her and that he spoke to her sincerely. In the next verse, we learn that Shechem immediately goes to his father Hamor and says to him, Father, please get me Dina as a wife. Genesis chapter 34, verse 4. Jacob learns about what happened between Shechem and Dina, but he keeps quiet about it so that his 12 sons do not find out. Shechem's father, Hamor, then comes to speak to Jacob to see if Dina will be allowed to marry Shechem. At this point, Jacob's sons hear the news and they are outraged. Nevertheless, the marriage negotiations begin. Hamor and Shechem, father and son, tell Jacob and his sons 
they will pay whatever price and do whatever is necessary so that Prince Shechem can marry Dina. The sons say, It is a disgrace if Dina marries a man who is uncircumcised. You and all of the men of your city must become circumcised. If you do that, Shechem can marry Dina, and our two tribes can live together in peace. Hamor and Shechem agree to the deal. So, Hamor and Shechem are circumcised, and all of the men of the city are circumcised as well. The story seems to be on the verge of a happy ending, in which Dina and Shechem live happily ever after, and the two tribes coexist in peace and harmony. Yet, it is not to be. Three days after the circumcision, Shechem and Hamor and all of the men of the town are lying in pain. Simon and Levi, two of Dina's brothers, enter the city with their swords. The men have all been circumcised, so there is no one to protect the city. Simon and Levi kill every man in the town with their swords, including, of course, Shechem and Hamor. Then they plunder the town, destroying homes, stealing animals, raping the women, and taking their children as slaves. Dina herself is dragged out of Shechem's house and brought back to the Israelite camp. Jacob, of course, is furious with his sons, Simon and Levi. He screams at them, How could you do this? Now the other tribes of the area will unite together and attack us. Interestingly, Jacob expresses no sympathy for the victims of the slaughter or for his daughter Dina. Simon and Levi's reply to their father is most telling. They say to their father, Jacob, Should our sister be treated like a whore? Should our sister be treated like a whore? What is so significant about this line? I would imagine that this thought, our sister is being treated like a whore, was the brother's exact thought when they first heard about Shechem lying with Dina. After all that transpired afterwards, Shechem's declaration of love for Dina, Jacob smoking the peace pipe with Hamor, and the circumcision of all of Hamor's men, none of it mattered. This thought, our sister is being treated like a whore, remained firmly etched in the minds of the brothers, Simon and Levi. They could not get past this judgment, and the Torah seems to want to indicate this to us. When Simon and Levi say to Jacob, should our sister be treated like a whore, it is as though they have been sleeping through all that occurred in the interim. Dina could have said to them, guys, I love Shechem, he didn't rape me, it was consensual sex, I want to be married to him, but it would not have mattered. The thought and judgment had become Simon and Levy's reality. How would you describe... What kind of revenge is this in, in terms of Simon and Levy? Like, what's the kind of... What, what, what kind of revenge? Do... Yeah. Well, Why like, do they want... Kind of what... Yeah. I think what it has to do with is that, or at least the impression I get, and you know, I, um, I have spent a lot of time, you know, reading, studying the Bible when I was younger. I'm not super, you know, familiar with all aspects of it, so just that caveat. But especially the Old Testament, but uh, or the Torah. Um, but from my read of this story, I really get the impression that like so sort of the the elements you brought up that there's sort of debate over like was this a consenting relationship or um you know all of these things i almost get the impression that to uh jacob's sons it really doesn't matter right that they they don't think that he had the right to like marry into their tribe and to like kind of like butt in like force himself into their tribe um and that to allow that to happen would be to treat their sister like a prostitute basically well and... i think it's also just i mean it's very emotional because i mean for brothers anytime i think yeah i think that uh we don't know exactly what happened but Regardless, a strange man had sex with their sister, and it upset them. To them, it was just a huge 
insult, a huge slight. Well, and I think you have to put yourself in the mindset too of like, in today's world, like lots of people have family members who have se- who have sex with strange people, right? Sex was very like sex and marriage. Like that's not just your own individual choice when we're talking about Bronze Age moralities, usually right. not. It's like you are part of a broader family and a broader community, or in this case, the way they saw themselves, like we are the chosen people. And so I think I can understand where it's just like this guy, the presumptuousness and his, um, like the idea that you could even like, that Dina could even individually make that choice might be like foreign to them. And there is probably an emotional element, but I think maybe why the story is condemned is exactly like, it's like that it also wasn't really their place to take that revenge, right? That uh, if Jacob is the one like making this deal with them and that they're doing something that's going to potentially turn these other like tribes against them, that they're sort of acting out of place, right? And so that all plays into this too, because um, like, how would we put it? Like Nietzsche talks a lot about obeying and commanding and sort of how like the mark of true culture is being able to like command and obey. And that's sort of one of the things he, he criticizes about our modern culture is that we don't have the, or, or his culture at the time, but I think as we were talking about at the very beginning, might apply to us today is that if people are increasingly like unable to like sublimate their own will to some project that is like greater than themselves. And that doesn't mean being like self-abnegating or other directed, but it might mean like it's the understanding that you are uh, what justifies your life in some sense is like bringing forth something greater right for a lot of people they they satisfy this urge with with uh this drive by having children you know like i'm creating something beyond myself that will survive beyond me and everyone wishes for a better life for their children than they had and hopes they will go on to accomplish they want to give them opportunities to accomplish things at least good parents do um and so or we might look to the arts a lot of people create beyond themselves in that way um but that all of these things sort of require the ability to overcome to self overcome just purely hedonistic short term impulse fulfillment right and so there's as we've been talking about and i i've kind of already given my opinion like there's maybe nothing wrong with somebody who is of the noble like stature uh responding in kind to a slight but I think maybe the issue here is it's like that really wasn't their place to do that. They they should have uh, yielded to what their father wanted because he was actually the one they should have been able to sublimate their will to the greater project of like what their father trusted in what he was trying to do um, or his leadership yeah. or however you want to put it. I mean, I think it's really great to hear your perspective because it takes us into the the forgotten mindset of this kind of ancient Bronze Age morality. I think as we, if we read this today in the 21st century, our thoughts are just, well, they're acting like, I mean, I think I read it and I'm just like, they're just uh, barbarians who they just can, they just act purely on impulse and this kind of base desire for revenge. I didn't even really focus on the Jacob part. And I think Today, we would, the immediate reaction would be to condemn, condemn Simon and Levy for this kind of, this kind of violence, right? For unjustified violence, entirely disproportionate violence, right? To kill like all of these men and plunder the whole city just because they think that their sister was taken advantage of. Uh, And then Jacob would also be condemned because he didn't say to Simon and Levy, you know, that was immoral. That was evil. Like you killed innocent people. Instead, he said, no, you're, 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 you're endangering our standing with the other tribes. So the whole like morality here is just totally different from what we're used to.
just uh, one last question about this. I mean, don't you think Nietzsche, in terms of Simon and Levy, like, wouldn't he say, you know, it would have been a it would have been much better if they had had enough kind of if they hadn't didn't have so many kind of insecurities and feelings of kind of slights that if they just let it you know if they were not so um kind of kind of uh, prisoners to their own kind of raw emotions i mean do you think Nietzsche would have said that would have even been better if they didn't seek revenge and sure. they just got over it? Sure. Well, I don't know if it's uh, having to do with getting over it, but again, like, uh, like yielding to the wisdom of the like relevant authority who should handle it. Uh, I mean, the, the <laughs> thing I would say though, more broadly is that, yeah. that, um, hmm. the whole idea that they should like, just not give into their emotions and get over it. I think would be a little foreign to the bronze age mentality that I think Nietzsche does have admiration for that. Mm. Like if you, if it is a genuine slight against you and you have the power, you feel that you have the power to respond in kind, then you should. And it, you shouldn't like, it's not doing that feeling you have some obligation not to do that. That's going to even allow the thing, the buildup of resentment to happen in the first place. And it's the fact that the slave class or the common mass of people doesn't have the power to respond to power being imposed on them. That causes them to, um, you know, have all these like degenerative or corrosive moral ideas. And so like, I certainly think, Nietzsche's advocating that we be, go beyond just blind impulse fulfillment and just giving in to our emotions. And that's where like the commanding and obeying thing like has to do with it. But like broadly speaking, I think we really have to understand that like um, like these tribal groups in that period in history, like they don't really yet have the idea that we have today that like like, okay, so I'm an, I'm an American. Um, we are talking about you are from America as well. Um, you know, over here, we don't have like, okay, yeah, I know there's like racists and stuff out in the boonies, but like, we don't have like, oh, ethnic identity. Like what uh, America is, what it means to be an American is like kind of a series of ideas, right? It's like a certain um, like understanding of, you know, yourself as a citizen in this tradition of um, like liberal democracy and like civic life and um, this identity based on like, uh, you know, like a common set of principles. That's probably the best way to put it, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas at this time in history, I mean, our tribe is our tribe because that's our blood. And I think it's, you have to like look at that situation through the that lens that like the Shechem or that whatever the this tribe is like they're not us and they don't have the right to do this they're fundamentally different from us and no amount like i think there is an kind of an undertone to like what simeon and levy do of like just the adopting this like this practice that we do the circumcision doesn't actually make you one of us right like uh and maybe they were wrong to think like, cause it's Jacob who makes that deal. Right. So maybe Jacob did think that that would actually make them, maybe that was like a like innovative idea that he had of like, we can integrate them into our ranks by adopting this common set of principles. But I think, um, and so like, what would Nietzsche think about that? I don't think he's necessarily going to say one, one or the other, right? Like identity based on, um, some sort of like a biological kinship versus identity based on ideology that one of those is necessarily like right or wrong. It's just a different way that we tend to think about things today. Um, but I think that's kind of like at the base of a lot of this is uh, yeah. that there's no, there's no common like uh, ground between us basically. And so that's the only possible answer for them um, for better yeah. or for worse. I think you made some really important points which i myself maybe have lost sight of is to understand nietzsche and you're tapping into this way of thinking is like you can't 
you can't try to um, kind of castrate Nietzsche's thought or define Nietzsche's thought so that it fits with your own moral universe. Like you have to be willing to totally re just totally rethink morality. And what you're doing a nice job of is really like just not allowing us to kind of succumb to our own moral kind of framework and get really into the mindset of this ancient framework, which I think Nietzsche was excellent at. Um, and also to say that, you know, morality, I, I kind of was hoping, I was kind of trying to lead you to the answer of, well, yeah, they should be like Mirabeau and just kind of uh, have enough kind of internal strength or internal energy or uh, kind of power um, where they just, they, they forget it, you know, with as Mirabeau did. But I think what you're pointing out is that, you know, Mirabeau is a specific case of kind of an individual who's not part of, part of a nation or a tribe. I mean, not, I think what you're pointing out is that morality for Nietzsche is, is very much a question of relationships. It's not just about these kind of, today we, we don't like, we have, for us, morality is very much about um, how we feel, right, as individuals, but in this ancient world, yeah, it's- my, my intentions are good, basically, right? Uh, yeah, more, yeah, no, I think I think he hit the nail on the head. Like Mirabeau is in, he's in a different context and he- Yeah. I think, I mean, I actually would say though, just to, to butt in, like, I don't necessarily disagree that Nietzsche would say, like Mirabeau is like a great, uh exam exemplar for all of us as well but it is hard to say it is hard to take him and put him in the bronze age Nietzsche remarked that, quote, It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy up till now has consisted of, namely, the confession of its originator, and a species of involuntary and unconscious autobiography, unquote. In season one, episode eight of The Shrift, I read the Simon and Levy story in light of my own experience as a teenager in which my English teacher slighted me by not placing me into the advanced English class. Just as Simon and Levy could not forget, neither could I. We both repeated the same thought to ourselves. In their case, our sister is being treated like a whore. In my case, I will prove her wrong. Even though the thought had little basis in reality, and even less basis as time went on. Keegan's expertise in Nietzsche has helped us, or certainly me, to resist the human, all too human urge to believe we are philosophers when we are often just autobiographers. As Keegan astutely pointed out, the ancient world, which Levy and Simon inhabited, cannot just be effortlessly interchanged with our own. We cannot take Mirabeau and just plop him down in the Bronze Age, much as we might like to. There was no Simon or Levy in that high school English class, just me, Steve. Although, come to think of it, I'm pretty sure there was a kid named Jacob who sat in the back row. <laughs>